June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach is wasting the time of both the buyer and seller at every stage, especially when sellers are using shallow and outdated data. Your organization can overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to better outcomes, like more pipeline, higher win rates, and larger deals. We call this Deep Sales, and we've built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com trial. That is linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash trial and get started. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from our nation's capital at the St. Regis Hotel in Washington, D.C., taking your calls at 888-887-3837, that's 888 888- 88Peter, if you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Peter S. Greenberg or Facebook, facebook.com slash Peter Greenberg. Uh, Where we're coming to you from now is basically half a block from the White House. Uh, What a great historic hotel. Every single U.S. president 
since uh, Calvin Coolidge has been in this hotel. I said two blocks from the White House, short walk to the Washington Monument, and a great, great location. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about in the news this week. Um, and part of it is just basically the weather, uh, what's happening in, in, in North Carolina, uh, severe storms again, and, and weird weather. You know, it's, 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 uh, it may be winter, but it's 80 degrees out in Southern California, and, and New York is 50 degrees one day and zero degrees the next day. It's crazy. And that wreaks havoc, of course, with the transportation system. Uh, bottom line is if you need to get anywhere, first flight out, everybody. Anything after the first flight out of LaGuardia, you better bring a copy of War and Peace because you'll be reading it. It's as simple as that. Bottom line is, as the presidential campaign heats up and all the primary states, it's interesting to see how the weather is affecting the campaign and how, how the different candidates get there. We know Donald Trump flies his own 757, but what about the other candidates? Are they on a Greyhound bus? You might be surprised as the money starts to run out for some of these campaigns. It's very interesting to see how they, they coordinate the logistics of a presidential run and how they pay for it and how they block rooms. It's just really fascinating stuff. If you're on the advanced team of a candidate, you are like a super travel agent who gets no respect. It is simple as that. And uh, you, know, you can watch the news and see these guys show up in these different cities, but how did they get there? How did their team get there? How did their advanced team get there? How did their volunteers get there? How many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches can they make? I mean, it's pretty crazy. Uh, as you know, president's going to be heading down to Cuba very soon. And speaking of Calvin Coolidge, we just did, he's the first U.S. president to go since Calvin Coolidge. Think about that. Uh, think about all the things that will be happening very soon in Cuba. Uh, May 1st. The first U.S. cruise ship setting sail for Havana for the first time in over 60 years. That's pretty wild, um, or nearly 60 years. And then, of course, uh, the U.S. negotiating and concluding the negotiations with the Cubans for the resumption of, of scheduled airline service between the United States and Cuba. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about this for the next couple of weeks because I don't want to get everybody too excited about this because at the end of the day— even though they've negotiated this, there's an infrastructure problem and there's a capacity problem that people aren't even realizing because in a way we've been negatively propagandized by omission when it comes to Cuba. We think that just because we haven't gone, that nobody else has been going. Just the opposite. Everybody else has been going. There are only 60,000 available hotel rooms in Cuba and they're already occupied by everybody else in the world who's been going there for over 60 years. So for us to show up now, there's a capacity problem. Where are we going to stay? The, the irony is that Airbnb now has, are you ready for this, over 4,500 listings in Cuba, people renting out their homes. Capitalism lives in Cuba, ladies and gentlemen. Now, the first U.S. cruise ship going in May 1st. That doesn't mean the U.S. is going to be sending in scheduled airline service May 1st because those slots have to be negotiated, and they have to be negotiated at the U.S. Department of Transportation level with all the major airlines that want to go. Now, you may remember the old days, going back to the 1950s, Eastern Airlines flew there, American Airlines flew there, Pan Am flew there. Uh, well, we know Pan Am's not around, Eastern's not around. Some of those routes were taken over with, with either mergers or consolidations by the airlines that are still flying today, like American. But the U.S. Department of Transportation came to the conclusion that those rights weren't dormant, those rights were dead. So everything's back on the table, everything's open for negotiation, and what the Cubans have done, which I think is fascinating, 
is they basically said, okay, we're going to allow 110 daily flights to Cuba. But of those 110 daily flights, only 20 can go to Havana. That means the other 90 get spread out over nine other airports in Cuba that you've never heard of. The reason for that is not because Cuba suddenly wants to distribute the goodies. It's because Havana is saturated. So there are only going to be 20 scheduled flights a day to Havana, divided among American, United, Delta, Spirit, Frontier, Allegiant. Uh, It's going to be an interesting horse race here to see the jockeying that happens. And the most interesting part of that is that the airlines involved who want to go to Cuba are not going out and buying new planes to service the route. They're reallocating their assets, which means if you're the Minister of Tourism of St. Martin or Grenada or Barbados uh, or, for that matter, San Juan uh, or the Dominican Republic, you got a problem because you're about to lose air service. They're going to take some of those planes away from you and play and fly them where they can make more money to a place that everybody suddenly wants to go to. Now, let's talk about that more money aspect. Airlines are all about, it's a yield game now. It's not about a market share game. It's how much can they get for seat. And if everybody wants to be first on their block to go to Cuba, it's the law of supply and demand. They're going to be very expensive flights. But wait, it's about to get worse. I said there's an infrastructure problem that goes way beyond the hotels. How about cigar production, sugar production, rum production? Cuba can't literally ramp that up. So imagine the first guys going in will be cruise ships. Imagine 5,000 passengers rolling off a Royal Caribbean ship in Havana looking for the last three remaining Cuban cigars. I mean, it's gonna, it'll be the worst case of the price is right because the price will be wrong. And just be prepared for that. So my advice is don't wait for scheduled airline service. Try to be a part of one of the 12 different organized, recognized, approvable groups of people-to-people, educational, research, humanitarian, medical, that are allowed to go to Cuba right now on charter flights. Get in there now. Enjoy it now. You know those historical designations of uh, A.D. or B.C.? You've read them at school. You studied them. Well, I have another one for you. I came up with it. It's BKFC. Go before Kentucky Fried Chicken gets there because you know something? They're coming. Every other major corporation is coming. They removed the blocks on the credit card, so now you can use and swipe an American-based credit card at terminals throughout the country as they start installing them at lightning speed. Okay? You know what that means? Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Toto? We're not in Kansas anymore. You know, whenever I come into town, I want to ask a local about stuff that may not be in the brochure, may not be in the guidebooks, and my next guests know a little bit about that. They're the uh, the purveyors of Foodie and the Beast, and it's uh, David and Nikki Nellis. When did you start this, guys? Well, it's I'll, I'll make a long story short. Nikki's been a foodie since she came out of the womb, and I, until I met her, thought a good meal was sitting down from the stuff I was grazing at the refrigerator. But we are... My, I, my kind of guy. Yeah. 
Uh, we were. Uh, well, you guys can go out to dinner together. We on a, let's no, do that. No, we'll go out to the refrigerator. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> we're, we were on a cruise with uh, friends of ours from uh, WTOP, which is the leading radio station here in the, the marketplace. And I am kind of a meatball and all that. So we were having a, a food fight. We were having an argument about some aspect of dining. And they said, gee, that would make a good radio show. Well, except for the fact, I think what you're missing is that I'd already been covering the food and wine scene in D.C. for years previously. And I was currently on the WTOP radio station doing trend reports and things of that nature for the food and wine scene. So while we were having those food discussions, they thought, wow, we should really we have another channel. We should do some lifestyle programming there. What can you guys do? All right, so now let me be devil's advocate. Everybody claims they're a foodie. Everybody. I don't. Not him. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy with a burger and a beer and a, you know. Okay, you and I are going out to dinner. That's, <laughs> I hope so. You're buying, by the way. Of course. Well, if it's a burger and a beer, of course I'm going to buy. <laughs> no, but when you see what's going on now, at least the, the culture is saying, we want a hot new restaurant, we want a hot new chef. Is there any sort of a chef anymore who's not a celebrity chef? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what's going on in the D.C. dining scene, I mean, listen, you have your Mike Isabellas and your Jose Andres, and they deserve their accolades. But there are lots of men and women in the D.C. dining scene who are cooking and who are cooking really terrific food. They're not necessarily looking to get their names in lights. And they really believe in hospitality, which I think what people have to remember is, is that the restaurant industry is a part of the hospitality industry. Absolutely. Sometimes the restaurant industry forgets that. Everybody, too. listen, it's really easy to forget. And when your place is packed and you've got all these people running around, you know, it's, it's always hard to be hospitable. All right, I'm going to give you my pet peeve, okay? okay? I do it all the time, by the way. I finally figured it out. The one thing I hate about restaurants is what I call the terrible twos. I don't want to sit at a two-top. So I always make a reservation for three. And they got to put me at a table for four. <laughs> so do I. I do it. I just, I'm sorry. And you want to charge me four for it? I'll pay it. But the last thing I want to do at the end of the day, when I want to have a nice intimate dinner with somebody, male or female, it doesn't matter. I don't want to have to rub elbows with people I don't know and not have enough space at the table to talk. I always lie and say the other two called in sick. but Well, that's Elijah. That's <laughs> Elijah. Well, Elijah's at the Elijah's table. At the door. Well, and I appreciate where you're coming from, but I am going to give you the other side of the coin, which is that restaurants... Everything is by square foot. So I they said, have I to pay? I, I said I'd pay more for it. Okay, well, then you have to let them know that. Because, I mean, I appreciate where a restaurant comes from. I mean, everything in that restaurant costs money. Yes, but everything. here's the deal. I'll give you my next pet peeve. Go ahead, let's hear it. And then you can tell me the other side if you don't agree. Ready? Okay, absolutely. Okay. What is a restaurant reservation if not an implied contract? So it's a promise. So if I'm supposed to be there at 8 o'clock and I get there at 8 o'clock and the table's not ready in the hospitality industry, if I was running the restaurant, I'd say, Nikki, Go to the bar, drinks on me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't make you go to the bar and then tell you how to settle your tab there before you can go to the table. This is all about the, the bar. But some table. restaurants do that. Very few do. Okay, here's, I, I agree with you like 50%. Here's the thing about some restaurants. Some restaurants Let can, me know when she agrees with me more than 50%. I've, okay. I've never heard that on, for me. So. I know. Okay. okay, so some restaurants can afford to do that. No, and it's not what it costs. It's what it's worth. Here's I hear, the, no, no, wait. I hear what you're saying. But the thing is, is that when... You make a reservation at 8 o'clock at night, and they've already taken people in for, let's say, 6 o'clock. Those people should have left by 7.30. Right, but, but if it, they don't leave, you can't kick them out. No, you electrify the chairs and shock the crap out of them. <laughs> in Italy, they say, c'è soli fuori. There's sun outside. Go see it. That's right. What, you know, but, no, but in all honesty, mm-hmm. if I'm running the restaurant, I don't make money if you come once. I make money if you come back and tell totally all your true. friends. So if I tell you, how much would you be, would you be loving me if I said, Nikki, drinks are on me. And whenever you're ready to go to the table, we got it. No, absolutely. And I, you tell your friends. Of course. I totally agree with there you. you. Not everybody has the ability to do it, but those that do, do, be- do but better. I'll, but I'll give you the converse side. Okay. Let's say I have a reservation at 8 o'clock and I don't show up. 
let's say I have a reservation at o'clock and I'm there 30 minutes late. Mm-hmm. You've already taken my credit card when I made the reservation and there's a $50 penalty and I'd be willing to pay that too. Well, I actually applaud that idea because I really can't stand restaurants that don't take reservations. I think nothing right. says hospitality less than making people wait online. All right, I'll go one step beyond. Okay. What's worse? The one you hate, the restaurant that doesn't take reservations, mm-hmm. or the restaurant that insists on them and doesn't honor them? Well, I have to be honest, I I don't mind waiting a couple minutes. So it doesn't bother, I've never had to wait that long. I it do. does not bother me. You are, you're not I getting, like, I'm like, come on already. But I yeah. don't mind going to the bar, having a drink, talking with friends. <laughs> I don't mind food. it. Nick, I have to tell you something. I know. Dave and I are getting married. Uh, have a good time. You can really, be number four. Have at it. That's right. If you can handle it, Peter, I don't know. But here's here's the one thing I want to get back to when you talk about the restaurant scene here, and that is it's it's way more than the food because we have a local craft brewing scene and 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 craft uh, distilleries and all of that that's happening. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. We've been talking with David and Nikki Nellis, and they, I think they're still married. Yes? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So uh, so I got far. nowhere else to go. They're the host of uh, Foodie and the Beast right here in, in local radio here in Washington. Nikki's also doing The List, which I want to talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. But let me go back and ask a question before we even get to craft beer. Everybody that I know in Washington, and maybe I'm just not seeing this through a different lens or, or proper lens, I happen to guess that Washington has most, probably some of the most underutilized kitchens in private homes because everybody's going out. I don't see people cooking at home. That's good for business. But We're capitalists. Saying, yeah. so, you no, know. I don't know if that's entirely true. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a total and complete advocate for the restaurant industry. I, I, it, what's going on here is insane, uh, the amount of restaurants that are opening up every day, every week. Um, it's not just happening locally, it's happening nationally. I mean, people are really investing in quality restaurants. Right. Um, but I think people are also really entertaining. I mean, there's a reason why the Food Network does so well. People are watching people make food and going out and buying good quality food and then cooking it up in their home. So I maybe people... When, when, when was the last time you cooked at home? Oh, last, last night. Last night. I cook, um, I, even when I go out, and we go out an awful lot, I cook for my family almost every we night. We have five wow. kids, three still, two still at two home. Still so, still and home. we have dinner together, I mean, probably six nights a week. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I stand corrected. I mean, and the other night we lock him in the closet. You'll get used to it when you're bread. with me. Listen, I'm already getting used to it. I haven't been right once. My, my, I want your listeners to know my life is hell. <laughs> Have you, when was the last time you were right, David? Uh, let's see, June of 97, I think. Probably. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think I carved that down somewhere. All right, when you talk about, Nikki, talk about all these restaurants opening up, mm-hmm. talk about the list. Okay, so I started the list uh, almost 14 years ago just because it was information that I wanted. It's before blogs and things like this kind of radio show, podcasts, all that kind of stuff. It was uh, information I wanted about the food and wine scene in D.C. as far as all these events happening. At the time, you just couldn't find it. So now it's a publication. It goes out to 35,000 people, and it it's uber-focused on D.C. Uh, we write about every food and wine event happening in D.C., so you know about it, everything from festivals, charity events, you know, wine dinners, et cetera. And then uh, restaurants opening up. A lot of them. A lot of them. And uh, openings, and that's parlayed into everything else I do. I'll give you my story. I was a real creature of habit here in D.C. for years. I go back 30 years now or, or longer. I only hung out at two restaurants, mm-hmm. both of which are gone now, Germain's mm-hmm. and Joe and Moe's. 
No, Mo just passed away. I know he did. Uh, I know. Mo is such a great guy. What a mensch. He this guy, he was Ralph Cramden. He was a great he guy. He was Ralph Cramden. I'll tell you a story if I have time. He called me one day. He said, I have a way to make a lot of money. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I'm going to become a contestant on a quiz show. I said, what are you out of your mind? He said, Mo, what are you doing? He says, I got a jacket and a tie, because he never wore that. He said, I'm going to wear a jacket and a tie. I'm coming out to LA and I'm going to get on a show called Sale of the Century. I said, so where are you? He says, oh, I'm staying at your house. So Mo comes out, camps at my well, house. Oh, he's making money there. Just yeah, not paying for the room. Right, right. I'm not making this up. He comes out and he goes for the audition. And he comes back and he goes, I got. So he flies back to DC and now he's waiting for his choice and his call. He gets the call. So I figure, okay, he's going to stay at my house. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. Four so seasons. I said, wait. <laughs> I said, Mo, where are you? He's in a triplex suite at Universal Studios. Oh. I said, Mo, you have no money. What are you standing there for? You don't understand. If you want to be a winner, you got to think like a how winner. How did this guy have no money? He had the most successful restaurant. This is how he had no money. He, he gets on the show. He wouldn't tell me. They taped the show. So I wasn't there for the taping. And it was the fastest appearance by a contestant ever. He was aced and thrown off the show in about eight minutes. And... and he was on the red eye back to D.C. My name is Mo. Get out of here. <laughs> right. But here's the question. You know, they spin the wheel. And you have to, if you get the right wheel, you get to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Then you go for the big money. Right. They asked him, ready for this? Mo, who is the Viking explorer who supposedly discovered America before Christopher Columbus? And Mo says, I got it. I got it. Who is that? He goes, Nordstrom's. Oh, my God. So that's one strike. <laughs> the second one, right? They asked him, okay, who knows the cleanest form of energy? Boom. Mo gets it. Yes, I have it. What's the answer, Mo? He goes, coal. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was on the red eye. That was it. Oh, my God. That's so funny. But, I mean, we miss Mo a lot. And that was a great restaurant. I'm gonna, this is not one-usmanship. I'm one of only seven people living who has a certificate uh, acknowledging that I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner in one day at Joe and Mo's. My office is you right know upstairs. What? That's right. That's right. I'll it, sell it to you. It was on Connecticut Avenue. Yeah. I, I was at uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut. I know. Amazing. <laughs> What a great guy. He was a good man. I know. But now, of course, Nikki, mm-hmm. Jermaine's is gone, Joan Moses is gone, but it's been replaced by, what, about 100 restaurants? More. 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 Way more. I mean, there's, um, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for, but, you know, uh, the ethnic cuisine in the city has skyrocketed, and it's not just like little holes in the wall places. You know, there's really, you can do everything from really fine dining to, you know, upscale casual to, uh, you know, it's just not a steakhouse town every, anymore. I know everybody wants oh, to do good. steaks in D.C., but... I mean, some of the, there's really amazing eating in the city. Tom Sietzema just did, you know, he went to the, he named the 10 best dining cities in the country uh, in the Washington Post, and D.C. was in there, and it deserves that place. And it wouldn't have been in there five years ago. We should name some names, because you're talking, one of the finest restaurants in town it, every year, perennial winner is Rasika, which is an Indian restaurant. I go there for that spinach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. The palachat and the tandoori salmon. Oh, unbelievable. Delicious. I mean, Indian food is one of the best. You know, yeah. that's you. you got to scratch your head, but it's unbelievable. There's no scratching your head. The food is Well, delicious. you don't usually say the best restaurant in a city no. is Indian food. But they come close. I like Acadiana. There's nothing wrong with Acadiana. They have the most amazing oysters. The yes. grilled oysters with the Parmesan. Oh, my God. But let me tell you about some of the new restaurants in town. Do we have time? Because I can tell you about Convivial, which is a fabulous new restaurant in the Shaw District with Cedric Maupier. And you got Kinship by... Uh, Eric Ziebold, who used to be at City Zen. 
before we run out of time. Yes. It's Foodie and the Beast yep. on the radio. Yep. But Sunday's the list 11. is on, give me the website for the list. The list, are you on it.com? Uh, you know what? I'm not on it. Well, you better get on it. Okay. So, David Nikki <laughs> Nellis, still married after the second segment. And happily, too. It's only 20 years. Right. I'm the man of her dreams. <laughs> In your dreams. No, in hers too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Now joining me now, in the interest of full disclosure, she works for, indirectly, one of my former employers, uh, The Washington Post. My former employer many years ago was Newsweek, which was then owned by the Washington Post, and she's an amazing columnist for them. Roxanne, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Roxanne Roberts, how long have you worked there? 28 years. So they haven't found out? They have not, no. This is good. No, underaged. Yeah, what can I say? And you've seen the changes. I mean, you know, I am sick and tired of people telling me that newspapers are a dying breed, Uh, and I'm glad to see that at least somebody with deep enough pockets to prove me right is running your show. Well, it never hurts. Uh, for those that don't know, Jeff Bezos, the man who invented Amazon, and now one of the richest men in the country, owns us, which is great for us because he has given us, as he terms it, runway to experiment as we move into the digital age. And in fact, if I read the stories correctly, he hasn't cut, he's increased. He, well, he's investing deeply yeah. because he, I, I believe what he'd like to do with the newspaper business is create the kind of following that e-retail has. You know, before that, people were afraid to buy, and now everybody is moving to reading online on their phones, on devices, and I think he wants to be the leader in that industry. Now, you recently did a column about something that people aren't really thinking about yet, but they should, and that is we're in an election year. Some people might call it a clown car, but it's still an election year, and... I call it a clown car. It's rather entertaining until you have to stop and take a deep breath and realize how serious it is. And and by the way, I know exactly what the day is because it's also my birthday. So every four years, someone gets inaugurated on January 20th. That's your birthday, It huh? is. Okay. And this town gets transformed if it's not eight feet of snow. And there have been inaugurations where there were, but... People need to plan ahead if they're coming. And who actually comes to this? Well, it gets divided between two groups. I mean, the one thing that Washington knows that regardless of who gets elected, there are going to be people here for the inaugural. And It's sort of like the final four of the Super Bowl. Exactly. In that it doesn't sense. matter who's playing, the people are going to show up. Well, half of the people who show up will come regardless. Um, they come because they have some sort of corporate presence or one of the party presidents, but they know they're going to be here. And then there's a whole bunch of people who on the day after Election Day says, damn it, honey, let's go. And that they're the ones who scramble at the last minute. So that's the last ones who are looking for the remaining rooms. Um, but like the Super Bowl, you get your better deals if you sort of make your mark early on. 
Or I got my secret tip that always how to go to the Super Bowl for free. You want to hear it? Uh, yeah. Okay, here's a, it never fails. Just like the inauguration, you know where the game's going to be. You just don't know who's playing, right? Right. All right, so let's say the Super Bowl next year is going to be in New Orleans. I'm just throwing that out. I Today, right, February, I pick up the phone and I call the concierge, let's say at the Ritz-Carlton in New Orleans. And I remember, I only want two tickets and I want one room. But I say to the concierge, hey, I'm going to come into the Super Bowl. I want three rooms and I want six tickets. Here's my credit card. Get them. No problem. Now, I don't do anything. Of course, you're Peter Greenberg, so that does no, change the equation no, a little bit. No, 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 no. When I tell you how this works, it works for everybody. So now I don't do anything, right? About three weeks before the game, as the excitement's building, that same concierge calls me and goes, do you really need all three rooms, and do you really need all six tickets? Of course you don't. So you turn him around, make him the broker. He troubles or triples the face value. You give them back the rooms, and now your trip, your tickets, and your room are paid for from the sale of the other four tickets. Are we sure this is legal? It's totally legal. <laughs> okay, then. Now, for the inaugural here, it gets pretty expensive, though, because all the big hotels have packages right. that go for vast amounts. I'm always and by shocked the way, how much they go for. We've done stories on CBS about some of these packages. They're ludicrous. They're ludicrous. I mean, they throw in a diamond shopping spree. It's the limo. It's the fashion. Out, you know, it's, it's everybody. And that's just to get a room. Well, it's to get the room. And then sometimes they come with extras. Uh, but I will, I'll make this case, a free market case. If you've never been to an inaugural and somebody that you care about is becoming president, it's one of those bucket list things that you should try to do. And you don't necessarily have to be at a fancy hotel. But it is thrilling to see democracy in action. Well, we're talking to Roxanne Roberts in the Washington Post, but I would make this case, and I think you'd agree with me. Whatever hotel is selling the package, they're not going to guarantee you entrance into one of the inaugural balls. That's completely true, and I try to warn people. I, I am in the businesses of uh, making sure that I manage people's expectations, and people think an inaugural ball is like a state dinner, and it's all fancy and exclusive, and it's really like a giant cocktail party with bad cheese in, a, in, a, in an auditorium. And I want people to come and I want them to go home so happy. So I try to tell them, don't buy expensive clothes to come unless you already have them. And wear flat shoes and dress warm because you might have to stand outside for hours and hours and hours. I want people to have a thrilling time if they come. I don't want them to be disappointed. And every four years, there are, there are inaugural scams. Oh, They'll, say, they'll, so, yeah. they'll take out ads saying, watch the inauguration. Blah, blah. Yeah, you'll be watching it on your television in your hotel room. I was so disappointed um, in 2009 where a lot of people hoping to capitalize on the excitement about Barack Obama had what they called inaugural balls. People spent a lot of money. They bought tickets, and then they didn't materialize, or they turned out to be something like that. So the only people that can actually invite you to an inauguration or an official ball is the presidential inaugural committee. And uh, you have to be pretty plugged in with either a the A large candidate checkbook. Or, the, or a longtime party faithful. With a large checkbook. I am less cynical than you are, but okay. <laughs> that won't hurt. <laughs> there you go. It won't hurt. But, um, but Now, if you don't want to go out and buy one of those expensive hotel packages, who says you have to stay right, in, right where we are right now? You can stay in Virginia 
Yes. And just take the take the train. Yes. The the nice thing about DC is that we have a pretty extensive metro system, and uh, and it's pretty cheap and it's pretty efficient. So, I would encourage people to come, but be be wide, you know, wide eyed, but not in awe. You know, sort of trust but verify when you come, and and plan to soak up the history. You were talking about the monuments. I mean, honestly, and when you walk down the mall and you see the Lincoln Memorial, you know, you, you really should get some goosebumps when you do that. You should think about what it took for our country to get to this place. And that's part of the excitement of being here. Now, I know we're about nine months away, but give us your inside scoop on you have no tickets to the inauguration. Right. You have no tickets to the inaugural ball. You're staying in a hotel in McLean, Virginia. Okay. Where I live, which is a lovely city. Thank you very much. I just guessed that, didn't I? You did. I, I know. <laughs> but you want to come in and watch something. Right. Where would you stand? Assuming there's not eight feet of snow. Well, um, I would watch it on television because, it, particularly the inaugural ceremony, because you're, you're not likely to be close, which means you won't be able to see anything and you'll be oh, standing outside. When the president outside. gets out of the car and starts walking, where do you want to be? Well, you know... You can line up on the parade route if you're, you know, if you're dressed warm enough and you're willing to take your chances. Get there early in the morning. The parade route's not a bad place to do it. Although something tells me you're going to be in McLean watching on TV. Um, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, and I won't have to be outside in the cold. You see, spoken like a true reporter. When I was at Newsweek, everybody says, "Oh, you're going to go cover the Rose Bowl," and I said, "Hopefully not." you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. There's so many great restaurants in Washington, D.C., and it's probably one of three capitals in America that I would call power dining. L.A., New York, and Washington, D.C., for different reasons, of course. And uh, my next guest knows a lot about that because she's got a couple of them. It's Maria Trabocchi, who's from uh, a number of restaurants, including Folia Mare. Fiola Mare, yes, yes, in Georgetown. Yes. And now you are Spanish. Yes. Your husband's Italian. Very. You get along? For now. <laughs> Today, yes. <laughs> but I mean, you take these restaurants very seriously because the restaurant customers do. Yes. What's special about your restaurant? What exactly are you serving there that you're not going to find anywhere anywhere else in D.C.? Well, the one in Georgetown specifically is a seafood restaurant, and I think... Which is what I love, by the way. It, I love seafood, yeah. too, and I think it's one of those... Um, Fish is a thing that can characterize a chef better than anything else because anyone can cook a steak. But if you but mess up on the fish, boy, you're in trouble. One second off the fish and it's completely dry or whatever. So it's uh, we have a great selection of fresh fish every day. We have about 65 suppliers from all over the world just to change our menu daily. You know, it's funny. Is I, I thought I knew what I was doing in the kitchen. I don't. But the lesson that I learned is if you're going to cook a piece of fish, don't take your eye off it mm-hmm. because it's going to cook very quickly most of the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I don't even dare touch fish ever, you know. You let your husband do that. That's why I married him. <laughs> Clearly, yes. What's the one dish that you would call your signature dish? I think lobster ravioli is the one that everybody keeps going for. And actually, we also have it at Fiola downtown, but it's um, 
Lobster ravioli people keep coming back every single time. And right now, the market price for lobster is not bad. It's, it's a little bit better, but it, it fluctuates like everything else. Right, but I mean, a year ago, man, you could have bought as many lobsters as you wanted. Yeah, true. Crazy. Hmm. So like the oil prices. Yeah. it's. Uh... There's no explanation for it. I can't understand it. All of a sudden, the market just completely dropped. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. Now, when we talk about power dining, you have to deal with people jockeying for tables, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, power dining in D.C. is uh, is crucial. Like, as you mentioned before, like it could be New York, Chicago, you know, things like that. Uh, in D.C. is the political scene, clearly. Plus, big power companies that come here to do political deals as well. So when uh, I look at the book every day, every morning for all restaurants, and I choose who's sitting where based on who they are. And who's talking to who? And who and, can't be seen with And who? exactly, who cannot be next to each other, which is probably the most important part. Which means you better read the newspapers every day. I read the newspapers every day. I'm constantly on social media finding out what's the latest deal, what's happening, who is here, who's not. And then I also had to be very aware of who's the new member of Congress or who's substituting who, who's running for Congress or for Senate. Although, if you do your homework right, you could actually help broker world peace. <laughs> I could. I could do that, but I don't know if I, if I have enough time for a one-hour lunch. It all depends on what you're serving. That's true, too. With enough wine, they'll be there all afternoon. With enough wine, you know, anything can be done. Everything is negotiable that way. Now, I always ask this question. I've got to ask it to you. What's the one item? At Field uh, of Honor, that you put on the menu thinking everybody's going to love it, and nobody did. Uh, Percebes. Which is? Which is barnacles. What? Which is a specialty from Galicia in Spain. Well, we, you and I just talked about Galicia. And it is, and it is a delicacy, and it's, the, those are caught by hand and the rocks and the ocean, so they're extremely expensive, and they're delicious, and nobody, you look at them and they're really, really ugly, Nobody knows how to eat them, and every time we buy them, it's, it's a very expensive item. Wow. And nobody ever, ever buys them. Check the 171, contact departure. Contact departure, I'll go 
and I get a phone call from the network saying, change of plans, we need you to be on the air tomorrow morning in Orlando at 6 a.m. Well, there's only one flight out from Detroit to Orlando. I didn't have anything to wear. I had four hours before the flight left. So I said to the front desk, is there a Nordstrom's around here? This as a matter of fact, there's one about a mile away. So I said to a cab driver, take me there, and then we'll go to the airport. So I ran in, and I said to the guy, I just need two shirts, a tie, a jacket, a pair of pants, and they didn't have anything in my size. And he said, well, we can order it from another store. And I said, I don't think you understand. I got to get this and go to the airport. He goes, what time is your flight? I never met this guy before. I said, it's at 4.20. He said, what airline? I told him. He said, I'll meet you at the counter. This guy didn't know me from anything. But here's the funny part of the story. He goes to, he, I get to the airport. He's waiting there with my clothes. And before I had a chance to thank him, the next day I got a thank you letter from him. From him. Now that, That's you good. remember. That's good. Right? Yes. And this is a guy who lived to serve. Well, in my background's retail also, and I think hospitality and retail already have established themselves over the years that they needed to do a little bit better job. So what would you say right now is the one task that needs to be done? Look at their hiring practices and see if they're hiring the right people that really like serving customers. You know, it's amazing to me, the people that are just taking the job. They might as well go. They should, if they don't like dealing with customers, they can be an artist. That's a solo job. And a lonely job. Exactly. But and the thing is, it's the questions that they ask in the job interview, too. Exactly. And then training. I think there's not enough companies, again, across different industries. I have 27 different industries represented. Personal stories that happened to me, no names, of course. Over, and, and over. See, that's where we're different. I would name everybody. Well, maybe yeah. the second book. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. But the first one, I, I wanted to be a little bit more discreet. And all personal stories to me, nothing I relied on that had happened to someone else. In a course of time of seven to eight months, the book was written. Now, what was the biggest lesson you learned in writing this book? That unfortunately, even though I was in the business for 22 years, and we always taught hire the right people, train them correctly, it's still not happening for some reason. There's a, a big complacency. And I think the younger generation, too, is just saying, this is as good as it gets. This is all we've known. And there are, and they're accepting that exactly. And we need to speak up more. We need to complain. We need to look at online surveys and complete them. And smart companies will hire people within their organization to be monitoring those and reacting and fixing things. Can I add one more thing? Sure. We need to have a conversation. People need to look at like I'm looking at you right now. You're looking at me. You need to have a face-to-face conversation with people, not text them, not just go online, and learn from them. Yeah, exactly. I know, because they'll tell you. Your customers will tell you anything you wanted to know, good, bad, or ugly, if you just talk to them. Right. I heard you on one of your previous shows talking about the airlines. Of course, there are a whole chapter in the book as well. And as you said in that, nobody wants to get their hands into the bad business and see how they can take care of it better. And right. that, that's it. Even the people at the top aren't taking these complaints as seriously as they should to improve themselves. When was the last time the chairman of American, United, or Delta... Fluency 35E. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If I were running an airline, I would make it my point once a week to fly the line, not announced, pick any plane at random, 35E. Well, the last three chapters, again, with all my experience, my humble opinion, the three things you need to do, and that's how you hire people and what kind of people you hire, training. And the third thing is even if you do those two things well, if you don't have the right leadership at the top, it's going to fail. Now, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, who's your husband? Irving Humler. What does he do for a living? 
Um, he works in the hotel business. Name the hotel. Mm-hmm. Ritz Carlton. What does he do there? Um, he don't look at him. <laughs> He's the president, COO. So you know what we have to say right now? No. My pleasure. Yeah. And certainly. Right. No. But we have to mean it. Exactly. That's and the whole point. That's yeah. what makes him a good leader. Yeah, because he means it. Yep. Exactly. Right. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? I always like to go and ask the locals every time I go someplace, and my next guest I think now qualifies as a local. Uh, he goes back to, uh, well, the last century, actually. Is Pretty that, close, it, It's yes. correct. Yes. Come on. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it is. It is correct. Yes. But you, his name, of course, is Frank Ruta. He's the executive chef over at the Girl Room at the Capella. But before we get to your hotel and your restaurant, you had a rather interesting upbringing here. Yes, I did. I was brought to Washington in 1980 by um, the Carter administration. I was hired uh, by the executive chef then there, Henry Holler, and Mrs. Carter, and was hired at the White House. And, in the last year of the Carter presidency? In their last year of the Carter presidency. That's right. All right, so let's put some rumors away. Okay. You didn't serve grits. No, not that I recall. Right, we did not serve grits. What was the what was the craziest dish the president ever wanted at two in the morning? Well, it, oddly enough, they're very disciplined. They didn't have snacks at midnight snacks or anything at two in the morning. They had breakfast, lunch, dinner, and that was pretty much it. Wow. We left. We had leftovers. It was a family setting with the Carters. You know, Amy was there. She was twelve or thirteen. Chip Carter was probably just a little older than I was. I was twenty-two. And Wait a minute. There was Billy Carter. Billy Carter would drop in, and Miss Lillian would drop in every now and then. So it was a very family. But if you had Billy Carter, you had Billy Beer. There was Billy Beer, and there was a there was a lot of Billy, what we call it, drama or a little bit of activity that every now and then got I think Miss Lillian involved. And even at that age, he was golded. I heard that a couple of times. What were your biggest challenges at the White House? Yeah. I, mean, I don't think we had that many challenges. Everything was very regimented. Everything was very focused. Um, there were not, it wasn't that big of a crew. I think the biggest challenge was that it wasn't that big of a crew. It was very different than what goes on now with Chef Comerford. Uh, there were four of us. There was one in pastry and three on savory side. And we had to ramp up for big functions. And we had to State ramp- dinners. State dinners. State dinners, state luncheons. We had um, cocktail receptions. We had hors d'oeuvre parties. We had... It could be a working luncheon. It could be just about anything that was going on in the White House that we had to get ready for. We had a couple of people that helped us part-time, but for the most part, it was just the four of us manning the stoves. So Jimmy Carter just had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Uh, I don't recall peanut butter and jelly, but pimento cheese. We had pimento cheese sandwiches quite often. Um, there were fri- It was fried chicken. I mean, there were some staples, just like any other family had favorites. They would, like, uh, interject into the menu every now and then. But Now, you remember George Bush... George H.W. Bush hated broccoli. There, well, he did hate broccoli, and I tell you a story. Uh, one time, Mrs. he was out. He was out of the. He was out of the White House on a trip somewhere, and, and Mrs. Bush was eating alone. And I cooked broccoli because she liked broccoli. Um, and she said, "You know, I think George would like that. Can you make that whenever he comes back?" So there was this whole big thing about the broccoli. And it just was about that time, but we cooked the broccoli and served it, and he may have liked it. He didn't want to admit it, but he came. I remember we call him coming into the kitchen and saying, "That was nice," but and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, "Don't ever do that again." <laughs> so, <laughs> my kind of guy. Yeah. So I, after my knee stopped shaking, I said, "Yes, sir," and that was the end of that. But uh, I think it was just a little bit of fun that Barbara may have been, M- Mrs. Bush may have been having with President Bush. Now, after the White House, you went where? 
After the White House, I had the ambition of opening my own restaurant, um, like any young cook does. And I went to work for, at the time, who was one of the, the top chefs in the city here, uh, Yannick Cam. He had a restaurant called Le Pavillon in downtown yep, Washington. I remember. And uh, I worked with Yannick on and off for about five years at two or three of his restaurants. And then? And then I set off and I opened my restaurant in October of 2000, also in D.C. on Connecticut Avenue, and that stayed there for about 14 years. We were there about 14 years. And then you got smart. Uh, yes, that's what, I guess that's what it was, right. We stopped there, and um, I was hired about a few months after that. At um, Mr. Bradley hired me at the Capella Hotel in Georgetown, the grill room, to man that stove there. All right, now I've got to ask this question because you can do it of every chef. Okay. What's the one thing you put on the menu there? that you thought was going to be the best-selling item ever, and it tanked. And what was the one item you thought, no one's going to order this, and everybody did? You know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty cautious, and I have to say I'm pretty um, conservative to a certain extent. When we put something on the menu, we, we feel, have to feel good about it that we put it out there. I don't think we've ever done anything where we're that surprised where we say, uh, I don't understand why that's not selling. Usually if it doesn't sell, we'll just change the verbiage a bit on the menu. You try to sneak it around. Yeah, I try and sneak it around a little bit so that they – they're still getting what they bargained right. for. So but we're not talking brains or sweetbreads. We're talking right. Yeah, uh, just about. And I just think it's a. It could be a different fish. It could be a different different type of offal. Maybe calves liver or uh, beef or veal tongue. Those are. You know, I think every chef loves yeah, and embraces those okay. things. I'm not going for the veal tongue. Okay, we uh, got that. All right. Very quickly, uh, give me one or two places that you like to hang out. I always like to hang out at places where um, for fairly small places. I like like Eto on 14th Street. Um, and I can I, I, I like DC has a, such a great ethnic scene that I like stay, eating at, you know, Korean restaurants or Japanese restaurants like. in the city. Sushi Taro is another one in DC. And there are a few on the outskirts of Izakaya Seki is another great Japanese place. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. So you're always on the go. Now you can take the CBS Mornings with you. And we want to go wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews on the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Listen to CBS Mornings On The Go ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.